We're going to take our Bibles and we're going to go to Numbers chapter 6 this morning. Numbers chapter 6. And I'm going to turn my microphone down a little bit because I feel like I'm yelling right in your face. Um, we're going to, as we go through Numbers chapter 6, those of you who are joining us at home, what we're going to do is when we wrap up our, uh, our study here, we're going to stop the live stream and then those of us here will, uh, who wish to, we're going to celebrate communion together. But uh, we're going to look at Numbers chapter 6 this morning. And as you, as you look at, many of us have probably been in that situation where we look and uh, we have found ourselves maybe yelling uh, idle threats at our, at our kids maybe. You know, we, the, if you don't stop, I'm going to pull over and I'm going to... And really, how many of us have ever really planned to stop? Maybe you did. Maybe you're better than I. Uh, you know, if I have to turn this car around or, you know, if you don't stop crying, I'm going to give you something to cry about. And it's like, really? Like, okay. And, and we, make these, we make these threats sometimes that really have no, no weight to them. It's almost like, I'm going to make this promise. I'm going to do this. But if I don't do it, you know, it, it, really, it really never happens. We come to like New Year's resolutions. We make these promises. We make these vows. We're going to do this, and I'm going to I'm going to stick to it. And we know in the back of our minds, at least most most people, I would argue, we're like, yeah, I really want to do it, but I know I'm probably not going to stick to that. But it's good for me to say to everybody, I'm going to lose weight this year. Then everybody's happy and they think it's all all good. Uh, and, and we even do it. I think we do it with church too at times. We make these commitments to God, but you know, it's like, all right, that was a really powerful sermon by a pastor, and I'm I'm going to stick to this, but you know, I, I I know probably I'm going to fail, and it's just it's no big deal. But when we look in the Bible at what are called vows, vows are important to God, and they are important even in the Old Testament as we study through the Book of Numbers, and we we get our we get our understanding of it. There's going to be in Numbers chapter six a vow. That is, it's, it's a unique vow. But let's, let's back up a little bit and understand, because we in our culture, it's almost like we've been conditioned to make commitments that really we never intend to keep. Maybe it's the fear of commitment. Maybe it's the lack of concern for the impact of not keeping a command. But we are a, a vow, a commitment. But we need to look at maybe some of the commitments we've made in the past, the commitments we need to make, and understand even in light of what God says, what does God say about a vow? What does God say in the Old Testament about a vow? A vow is this. It's a voluntary promise to God. It's, it's when a person is going to indicate to God the importance of God, and they're going to say, okay, because God is so important to me, I'm going to make a vow, a promise to him. They indicate, a vow indicates great significance of personal sacrifice and commitment to God. It's saying, God, I intend to do something, do this whatever it is, for you. And it may be a great sacrifice to me. It may take a little bit out of my time or my money or my, my commitments to other areas. But because you are so great, God, I am going to follow through and do this commitment for you. They are not necessarily a, God, if you do this, then I'll do this. Or, God, if I, if I do this, then I expect you to do this. There are times that those types of vows exist in the Old Testament but they're not necessarily, that's not, God is not the genie or the, 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 the negotiator that I say, hey, if I do this for you, God, you know, I, I expect you to. A vow is a, just a commitment out of sheer gratitude and thankfulness of what God has done for us. They are not required. And I think this is important to understand. They're not required. And those who don't make a vow, they're not to be looked down upon, especially when we look at this vow in number six. 
If someone chooses not to make this vow, the others are not supposed to look down and say, oh, you haven't made that vow yet? What is the matter with you? I've made this vow. I've made this vow two or three times. What's the matter with you? It's not a, a superiority of righteousness one above the other, but it's looking and saying, hey, we need to, we need to consider making a vow or commitment, commitments to God. A vow, when we break a vow, when we uh, look and say, I'm going to do this, and then breaking a vow to God that he sees it as sin, that I have said, this is what I'm going to do for God. And when I don't, he says, it is not a good thing. Deuteronomy 23 talks about it. Numbers chapter 30, Ecclesiastes 5, all talk about that it is better even Ecclesiastes to, to not vow than to vow and not pay because God sees breaking a vow as a serious offense. But it is important to understand, and I, I love the grace of God when we look through, that even in the moments when we do break a vow, God still offers forgiveness. Now, I don't go into it looking and saying, well, God's going to forgive me, so I'll just try, and when I break it, it's no big deal. I intend to keep a vow when I make an oath or a promise to God that I intend to keep that. But if I don't, he will forgive me. But we need to remember that there still may be consequences. And there may be dire consequences for breaking the vow. And that happens throughout the Old Testament. And that's just a quick, because I don't want to spend the time looking at all those verses. You can go back and look them up later. Because that just gives us a general overview of what a vow is in the Old Testament. How Old Testament believers saw a vow. So when they would choose to make it, they saw this as a very important spiritual step. An important spiritual dynamic in their life. So he said, okay, if we're going to do this, I'm going to keep it. And I'm going to do my best to keep it because I don't want to offend God. I don't want to impact others for, for unrighteousness. I want to fulfill my vow to God. And so as we look at a vow, God thought, uh, great thought was going to be placed into making the vow. Excuse me. When, when they decided to make that vow, especially in this case, number six, it wasn't just a flippant, ah, no big deal. Hey, everybody else is doing it. I'm just going to make this vow. But rather, it was something that there was thought. There was going to be dedication. There was going to be cost. And so because of all of those things, they said, hey, we're going we're gonna to put some effort in. We're going to think about what we're going to, to enter into. Even Jesus reminds us, remember Matthew chapter 5, he talks about uh, not just flippantly making vows or even the idea they were making vows and they weren't invoking God's name. They were the, the Pharisees were making vows based on everything other than God because then they said, oh, I don't have to keep it. But Jesus Christ says, no, you, you let your yes be yes. You let your no be no. You keep your commitment. You keep your vow. And so entering into a vow, entering into a commitment with God was not just a fly-by-night thing. It was a, a moment where they would think through, they would dedicate, they would be intentional about what they were going to do and how they were going to serve and dedicate to God. So when we get to Numbers chapter 6, we're going to come to this, this vow called the Nazarite vow. Now when we think about the Nazarite vow, we probably, most of you probably instantly think, okay, there's, we know of three, three main big Nazarites. Do anybody remember any of them? John the Baptist is highlighted. Who else? Samson. Samuel is another one. But there are other Nazarites, and there are other people who take a Nazarite vow, even in the Scripture. Now, we, we bring those out. And in fact, even with John the Baptist, he's not necessarily called a Nazarite, but based on his demeanor, based upon how he acts, and then even some of the early church fathers highlight the fact that John the Baptist was uh, a Nazarite. 
Now, when we talk about a Nazarite, a Nazarite is somebody who has made the Nazarite vow. This is important to understand. A Nazarene is someone who comes from Nazareth. There's a, there's a difference. Jesus Christ was a Nazarene. He was not a Nazarite. He may have taken a Nazarite vow at some point, but when we look at number six, we're going to see that we know that Jesus drank grape juice. We know, we know that he had fruit of the vine. We know, did he ever touch dead bodies? Okay, we know he did that. So that he would instantly be breaking his Nazarite vow if he had taken that. So we know that he was a Nazarene, not, and we know he wasn't a, a lifelong Nazarite. Those the lifelong Nazarites, those three individuals we talked about, they were unique. But Jesus Christ is a Nazarene, not a Nazarite. As we look at the Nazarite vow, the Nazarite vow is a unique vow in the Old Testament. There, the portions of it, when we look through the text, there's going to be uh, different statements about what they do. But he says, and uh, God says to Moses, in verse 1, and speak to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, When either man or woman shall separate themselves to vow a vow of a Nazarite, to separate themselves unto the Lord. That, that word when it says vow a vow, some of your versions may have something uh, a little bit different where it talks about to, to take a special vow. It is a unique vow. The idea is it is a very, it's not, it's like a vow of vows. This is an intense an intense commitment. It is a special vow that these individuals would make to God. And though parts of this, this vow are going to be seen throughout the Old Testament, for example, the priests were told that when you go to work in the tabernacle, we, we learned a few weeks ago in our study, you're not to be, to be drinking the wine, you're not to be even potentially intoxicated. The Nazarite is even taken taking to another level. It says, don't even touch, don't even consume the fruit of the vine. Don't even consume the grapes, the raisins, the seeds. Don't, don't have anything to do with that. So they're, they're even a little bit more intense in what they are. There's, there's conversations about not touching the, the dead, the unclean things in the Old Testament. And they're also with the Nazarite. But in the Nazarite vow, you have all three of these different dynamics. Those two plus the not cutting of the hair. You have it actually all in one. At one moment, not just doing one or the other. So they, it, it's an intensified, it's a unique vow. The vow is a voluntary vow. It is not mandated. It is not required of everyone to take this vow. But rather, it was when they would do this. The priests were priests because they were priests by birth. The Levites were Levites because they were Levites by birth. The Nazarite becomes a Nazarite because of choice and consecration. They are saying, we are going to set ourselves apart to God. We are going to take our life and make it sacred and holy for this time, rather than just, oh, I was born a Nazarite. There are a couple situations we know. Samuel and Samson both. They were born as a Nazarite because their mothers chose that for them. And we have no reason from Scripture to say they could not do that. But it was not the common normal pattern that occurred. But in those cases, they did. The vow, it does not, uh, the Nazarite does not have to take this vow. And what, what I mean by that is they don't, they don't have to continually take it for life. They can take it for a short time. It is there in uh, verse 2. It talks about when they vow, the vow vow. So they could choose at any point in their life to vow it. And in fact, later on in the passage, we'll see that when the time comes and they finish the, the vow, down in verse 13, it says, and this is the law, when the days of his separation are fulfilled. 
So we know even from verse 13 that it is not necessarily a lifelong vow. There was a time period for many individuals who took this vow and they set it aside and they said, okay, this is going to be the time period that we do it. The vow was personal. It was personal in the sense that it's voluntary, but also in the sense that it allows for any Israelite to express personally their devotion, his or her devotion to God. It wasn't mandated, but they could look, any individual, man, woman, notice, did you notice in verse 2? We, don't, we only think of the, the men in Scripture, but verse 2 says that when a man or a woman takes this, it is a, a moment of consecration to say, out of my devotion to God's grace and God's goodness, I am going to set my life, uh, maybe for an act of service, maybe for a specific time, in a specific way, I am going to set it apart personally to God. Now, it's something that each individual alone decides, and they can express it how they would like. For some of you, you may say, you know what, I I need to make some commitments to God about my prayer life. It's really been bad, and I'm going to make some commitments. Or maybe it's a commitment to say, I'm going to read the scriptures more. Or a commitment to say, I need to go through through baptism. And there's a vow we make at baptism to set out to live for the Lord. But making commitments to God and saying, each of us, it may be in a different way. But I'm going to do something for God that says I'm going to express my love, my gratitude, my devotion for him and to him. And even though it's it's personal, the Nazarite vow was public. There was no way of getting around it. The the Nazarite would look like Tom Hanks and cast away. The hair is everywhere. It is just you you knew a Nazarite when you walked when they walked around. It wasn't, it wasn't like, oh, I wonder if they are or if they're not. It was a personal vow, but it was a very public moment. The, the men would not uh, cut their hair. It would continue to grow. Uh, most of the, the commentators and early church writers talk about when a lady would take the Nazarite vow. She would choose not to adorn her hair. She would just let it go. She wouldn't be brushing it and combing it and keeping it. And you, I mean, some of you would like, I can't handle the fact that I couldn't see a hairdresser for, you know, two months during COVID here and it was driving me nuts because my roots were showing and but they would just look and say okay because of my devotion to god i'm going to demonstrate this in a public way so even though it's personal it was everybody knew that they were they were going through that everybody knew they were making that commitment that devotion to to god it was also a costly vow now it was costly personally because you remember down in verse verse number seven when you when you look Uh, It talks about, he shall not make himself unclean for his father or for his mother or for his brother or for his sister when they die. At personal cost, if, if their family member died while they were in the midst of taking the Nazarite vow, they didn't go to the funeral no matter who the relative was. That's a personal, that's a personal sacrifice. But the commitment is saying, I'm committed to God so much that even those who are close to me, they're second. Because God is first. And I'm going to commit. And I've made this, this vow, this commitment to God. And I'm going to do that even through that intense uh, emotional distress. I'm going to separate myself because I'm separated unto God for this time. I'm not even going to make myself unclean because I'm separated to be holy unto the Lord. And so they, they would make that, that vow. And that, that's a personal cost. But there was also a monetary cost that occurred. If you notice down toward the end of the, the chapter, uh, verses 9 through 17, this is the, the initial cost is if, uh, 
if you were in a situation, verses 9 through 17 say, um, and if a man die very suddenly by him and has defiled the head of his consecration, then he shall shave his head in the days of cleansing. On the seventh day he shall shave it. On the eighth day he shall bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons uh, to the priest, to the door of the tabernacle. And he's going to have to bring a, a, uh, an offering to the priest. Now in verses 9, 9 and following, just the initial ones, it's really interesting that God in his grace allows the individual who goes through this unique situation. What it is, is the Nazarites going through life, they still would interact with people. Maybe they're by their father, talking to their father, and all of a sudden their father happens to just die of a heart attack. And right there in front of him. And because they've been in proximity to a dead body, we even saw that last week in chapter 5, because that happens, they're considered ceremonially, ritually unclean. So now because they're unclean, their Nazarite vow has been broken, but they did not do it intentionally. And God says, because of that, I will allow you to continue the vow, but he has some different uh, responsibilities. He has to do the sacrifice. He has to go through the eight days of cleansing. And then it even goes on a little bit further and says, you have to start it all over again. You have to start whatever your commitment of time was. In fact, there's a, uh, there's a in the Hebrew writings, there, uh, one of the uh, rabbis wrote about a, an Old Testament queen who took a seven-year Levitical uh, Nazarite vow. And in the last week of her vow, one of her courtiers, one of her uh, handmaids died next to her. And she actually went through the ritual process and consecrated herself, had to consecrate herself to fulfill her vow to God for another seven years as a Nazarite. Because the scriptures say that when you take this vow, uh, he shall consecrate, verse 12, unto the Lord the days of his separation and bring the lamb of the... uh, Firstborn uh, shall bring the trespass offering, but the days that were before shall be lost because his separation was defiled. And so they, had, they would have to redo. So they understood when they made this commitment to God, when they made this vow, for however long it was, there's not, it wasn't, it had to be seven years. It didn't have, it could be a week, it could be 30 days, it could be whatever length they committed to this. Although most, most seem to think it's at least 30 days because then you would start to definitely notice the unkept hair and all those different things. But they would have to commit to that. So you knew that going in, that there was a deep commitment and there was potential cost. And even when you finished the sacrifice, when the vow is fulfilled, verses 13 through 17 talk about what happens when the Nazarite has completed their vow. What do they do? How do they respond? And it talks about that they're going to bring all of these different offerings. They're going to bring them to the priest, verse 13. And this is the law of the Nazarite. When the days of his separation are fulfilled, when they're complete, he shall uh, be brought to the door of the tabernacle. He shall offer his offerings unto the Lord. One, One male lamb the first year without blemish for a burnt offering. One female lamb, a ewe lamb, for the uh, first year without blemish for a sin offering. One ram without blemish for peace offering. And a basket of unleavened bread, fine cakes of flour mingled with oil. 
uh, of wafers of unleavened bread, uh, anointed with oil, and, the, and their meat offering, and their drink offering. And the priest shall bring them before the Lord, and shall offer his sin offering and his burnt offering, and shall offer the ram for sacrifice and the peace offerings unto the Lord. And they're going to take the unleavened bread. All of those different sacrifices, the individual who consecrated themselves as a Nazarite was then responsible in order to fulfill his Nazarite vow or her Nazarite vow, had to bring those items to the priest all for sacrifice. All as a dedication to God and a celebration, even at the end of saying, my time has been completed. We know even the celebration occurs because they're allowed back to to have the fruit of the vine. Those uh, moments are taken away. In fact, they take the hair and they shave off all the hair it talks about in verse 18 and following. And they'll take that hair and then they burn it as an offering. I hate the smell of burnt hair. I don't know, like, if you ever, you know, accidentally burned, you know, you open up the grill and everything singes and you smell, you know, oh. But can you imagine, a, I mean, somebody who's got hair that's been growing for seven years and now we're going to cut it and shave it off and now we're going to throw it in the fire as a burnt offering. And yet God finds that as a sweet aroma. Not because of the, the smell of burnt hair, but because of the consecration of somebody who said, I'm going to commit to God for this time. I'm going to follow through. And this is an act of my devotion and my service and my love to God. And so they they go through this whole process, this whole ritual. But it was a costly vow. It wasn't just something, again, that you just did willy-nilly just to, to do it. The Nazarite vow was usually temporary. We've talked about that already, that it wasn't necessarily a lifelong vow. Those unique moments of those individuals, for some who had the lifelong vow, the Samson and the Samuel, uh, and it seems John the Baptist as well, uh, when their days are fulfilled. This doesn't negate the idea of a lifelong vow. Just because it says when their days are fulfilled, it doesn't say it has to be a, a certain time. But it says if they have that idea, then it is a shortened uh, voluntary time. And it is usually temporary, but occasionally it is it is permanent. So to look just, that's just sort of like the historical background. What does the Bible say generally about a Nazarite? The, the Sunday school synopsis lesson of that's what, that's what a Nazarite, the, the vow entails. In order to do this, you have to think about it. In order to be a Nazarite, you must have had a desire to honor God. Or you couldn't and really probably wouldn't even want to go through all those things. Why would I want to have to bring all those sacrifices if I really didn't desire and want to serve God? Why would I want to allow my hair to grow and, and to grow and to grow and not be able to take care of it? Why would I do that if I didn't care less about me and more about God? So there is this desire that the individuals had to say, no matter what is around, I'm going to serve God. I'm going to dedicate, consecrate my life to Him. And to be a Nazarite, to honor God, you were required to express your devotion in an epic display of self-denial. We don't like self-denial, do we? I don't. I like self-indulgence. That's my, that's my sin nature. I want to enjoy indulging in anything I want to. And yet, when we look at the Scriptures and we look at the Nazarite, it is an epic display for the Nazarite of self-denial to not be drinking or be involved with anything from the fruit of the vine, to not cut your hair or to adorn your hair, to not potentially have to go to a family with a, a dead loved one, a funeral, to, to be away from that, to separate myself from uncleanness because I'm separating myself to God. 
And yet, individuals continually took this vow throughout history. Why? Because they desired God, they wanted to respect Him, and they wanted to show their devotion to God. Do you remember, uh, many of you, maybe you don't, some of you may, you remember Bullwinkle, Rocky and Bullwinkle, and they would have those Mr. Know-it-all segments where, you know, Bullwinkle would act like he knows everything and everything would be, and he would give like the most ludicrous reasons for, you know, maybe how to swim and all these, and it, you knew it was not going to end well, but he always acted like he knew everything. I fear sometimes when I've taught or thought about the Nazarites, I've been like this Mr. Know-it-all. You know, I've thought like, okay, it was always a lifetime vow and it was only for men. And yet it's, it's just about, you know, it had to be just specific service to, to God. Or that we look and we say, well, it was only for special select individuals. And yet when I look through this passage, all that's false. A man or a woman could take it. It didn't necessarily have to be for a lifetime. It could be a shortened time where, where one of us would say, okay, I want to I dedicate my life, consecrate an area of my life to God. That's what they were doing. And so when I look at the Nazarite vow, when I start to try and say, okay, how is this going to start relating to us? Because I'm not here today to tell you, all right, everybody, let's start growing our hair out and let's let it fly. And, you know, no more. You can't have any grape juice, even though we're going to take communion. Don't touch anything from the grapes today. You know, we're not, we're not going to jump to that. But what does the Nazarite vow, what, what does it start to entail? The vow allows, you know, opposite of what I knew, here's some just interesting tidbits that, that really stuck with me. The vow allows for lay people to, to be priestly, really, for both men and women to voluntarily serve the Lord. It was, a, it was times of dedication. They could act in a priestly way, even though they weren't from the tribe of, or the, the family of Aaron. They could be serving and dedicated like, the, like those in the tribe of Levi, even though they weren't a Levite. They could, they could voluntarily serve, man or woman, anyone could. The vow allows ordinary Israelites to express their love to God and their gratitude to God practically. We don't have in scriptures all of the different ways that people took Nazarite vows. You can go back and read some of the different Jewish writings and how they would serve, how they would, some would dedicate, some of the ladies would dedicate to come to the fronts of the tabernacle and to sing and to, to be uh, present to help serve and to clean in the temples. And they, they would do those different types of things. But they would choose to do areas where they could say, this, I'm doing this and I'm doing this because of my love and my gratitude for my God. Because he has done so much uh, so much wonderful and gracious things for me. I want to respond in gratitude to him. And this vow separated the Nazarite to the Lord. You're going to see in the passage, down in verse uh, 2, verse 8, it talks about that they were separated, uh, they separate themselves unto the Lord. Verse number 8, all the days of his separation, he is holy unto the Lord. It is that act of consecration. When we say consecrated, it has that idea of to make sacred, to take an area of my life, to take a time period in my life, to take these, these uh, moments or acts and say, I'm going to separate this as holy unto the Lord. Maybe it's, it's practically in saying, I'm going to separate my, my time, my entertainment for the next month 
specifically to the Lord. I'm going to use that time maybe to read some extra scripture or to watch some really good Christian movies, but I'm going to separate that. I'm going to separate my time over the next weeks to say, maybe there's some different things. Maybe there's some projects outside that that, that needs to be done at the church, pastors or anything I could do. Or in the future, looking and saying when, when all COVID is finally done and over with to say, I'm going to find a way to truly show God in my life that I am consecrated to him. And I'm going to make this a dedicated commitment and an effort to honor him, to separate, to make my, an area of my life sacred to him. When this vow separated, the people could now be priestly. You can look and you can see the, the, the parallels between what the priest was required to do and even what the Nazarite was able to do. And the, the active layperson, the, the ordinary person in Israel, which we would have all been, we would have had the opportunity to look and to act and to serve God, not in the full ways that a priest could, but in a very priestly, dedicated way. It was an opportunity for people to be devoted to God and dedicated to God's service, to look and to say, I'm going to choose however it is to serve God. And consecration, I, I think this is really important. It's possible for every Israelite And even for us, we look and say, oh, being holy is so difficult. In in an unholy world, it is hard, and yet God calls us to be holy. He says, make yourself, separate yourselves, be distinct from the world, be different. Not to have a discipleship in our life that just wants to be like the world, but to look and say, the scriptures call me to a uniqueness. They call me to a peculiarity. They call me to a difference, to live in a way that honors and glorifies God by being separate, by people knowing that, oh, wow, there's a Christian. How do we know that? Oh, by the way they speak, the way they talk, the way they think, their philosophy of life, the way that they conduct themselves, the way that, the, the way that they serve people. There's, there's just something about them. I see the love of Christ in their life, in the way they act. But to consecrate ourselves even today, just like it was for the Israelite, it's possible for us to be able to do that. The vow, when we think about even for us as Christians, what vows do we make? There are vows that we have made. And how do we, how do, we do that? As we make those vows before God, have we kept them? Have we been honoring our baptismal vow, when we stand up here and we say, I want to set out to live for the Lord. I want to, by faith, I want to walk because of the grace of God. I want to set out to live by faith. And we make that commitment, and then we just go and we, we live our own way. Do we, do we look and say, you know, we dedicate our lives to serve him. Romans 12, Paul says, hey, present your bodies as that living sacrifice. What's really interesting is Paul understood this. In fact, if you look back in Acts 18 sometime, you're going to see that Paul, when he's in Sancria, he's there and he shaves his head and he finishes a vow that he has made unto the Lord. He's, he's taken a Nazaritic vow. He has to shave his head. He's going to do that. And then later on, when he gets back to Jerusalem, he brings it and he needs, he actually needs people to help him because he can't afford the final sacrifices because there's so much. And he asks individuals in Acts 24 to help him finish up that sacrifice. But Paul makes that commitment. So when he says to present your body as a living sacrifice, he very well understands this idea of consecration in our lives. We've taken our marriage vows. Have we upheld them? Have we been faithful to love and to cherish in sickness and in health for rich or for poor? Whatever your vows were, maybe you wrote your own. But those vows, 
as we make them. I know when I do it at weddings and I know when pastor does, you know, we talk about, you know, you're going to make this vow. You're making it not just to each other, but you're making it to God and you're making it before these people here as witnesses. But those vows are made to God. How are we doing on that? Our, our giving vows, when we've committed to the Lord that I'm going to give in my tithe, in my offering, and then it gets tight and we say, okay, God, you know, how do we do with that? Are we, are we trusting God because we've dedicated that to God? We've dedicated to write that first check of the month to him, or we've dedicated uh, to give a certain portion of our income, whatever that may be. Out of God's abundant grace to us, we give back to him. When we make vows to pray, to read the Bible, to defend the faith, to proclaim the gospel. And we've made them, many, many of us have probably made them sitting in these pews. And we walk out and we forget our vow. We forget our commitment to the Lord. Or do we look and say, no, this is a sacred area. This is an area that I have chosen and told God I'm going to be faithful in. And to commit ourselves to the, the, the dedication, the consecration that we have given to the Lord. Some of you may look and say, you know what, all of that, I would just, you know, Ecclesiastes 5 says it's better for me not to vow than, than to vow and not pay. And we could easily look and say, okay, then I'm just never going to commit anything to God and sort of just whatever happens, happens. There's a phrase I used to use with a lot of the teens, and I loved it. It used to be the, one of the Air Force slogans, to aim high. To shoot for something, do, do something hard. To do hard things in our life, not just to say, I'm just going to go with the simplest, easiest, bottom of the line, status quo, and no big deal. But what can I look at in my life and say, I am going to commit. I am going to dedicate to God. I'm going to aim, aim for something high. And, I, and I, I think just like when I, pastors talked about fasting at times, he says, don't, don't start and say, I'm going to do a seven-week fast. You, you start, start small. Do something tangible. Say, God, I'm going to commit over this week to do whatever it is, to pray for 15 extra minutes, but I'm going to do that because this is important. God, I'm going to commit to write some letters to individuals this week because I want to be an encouragement, and I'm going to do that as an act of love and service and dedication to you because I want to bear one another's burdens. I want to encourage the body. But you choose something, and, and don't, don't just walk away and say, I, I don't want to make a vow and not keep it. But think through the vow you want to make. Think about what it could be. And then when we do that, aim high. Let's, let's, let's look to serve our Father. Let's look to serve God in a great and wonderful way. The, the, the um, Nazarites, they were really a billboard of gratitude. When they walked around, not only gratitude, but you saw an individual who was faithful. You saw an individual who was sincere. You saw an individual who was realistic and dedicated. They were persistent. And, and you saw that individual. But what was it about them? As we, as we wrap up with just a couple concluding thoughts, when we look at the, the back story, the philosophy, the, the point of these individuals, what were they driving at? What can I learn from the Nazarite vow? Think number one, Nazarites were heavenly focused. In our lives, are we kingdom focused? Are we thinking about heaven? Are we thinking about what is to come? One of, the, one of the writers, Dr. Lingen Duncan, says this, that the grapevines symbolized the occupation and the domestication of the land. In other words, it was home. It was their permanent residence. No, there was not a single nomad. And remember, at this point in Numbers, they're a nomadic tribe. 
And yet, there's, they're going to say one day they're going to come into the land. God's going to give them vines. They're going to be able to, to take from them. They're going to be able to enjoy the fruit of them. And yet, to, to look and to say, when you could pull from your own vine, it took three years typically to get a grapevine to the point where you could enjoy the harvest. By that point, this was home. This was what you were enjoying. It was the fruits of your labor. This was your little square of earth. And yet, when they would look and say, I'm not going to impart, take any part of that. One of the pictures that is drawn out is saying, this world's not my home. I'm going to focus more on the things to come. I want the life to come more than anything else, even more than the beauty and the fruits of my home, my land, my vines. They would look and say, I'm going to separate from that. I'm going to be thinking about God. I'm going to be focused on him. I'm going to be focused on his kingdom rather than simply what I can get just out of here on earth what I can get in my, my, my world. The Nazarite not only was heavenly-minded, but the Nazarites demonstrated consecrated living. We see that throughout the chapter, that they're separated unto God, that they are holy. There was obviously this visible dedication to God. They did not cut their hair. It was growing. It was long. It was evidence that they were going to be dedicated and consecrated to God. No one had to wonder. Everybody knew. And in our society, we have definitely moved more toward that idea of a lot of times in Christianity, let's just blend in. You know, hopefully they'll find out we're Christians. There was a distinction. There was a dedication. They lived consecrated, holy to God. I belong to God, and I don't mind anyone seeing that. That's what they were saying. This is, this is who I am because I am belonging to God. So do we look and we say, okay, it's, I, I want the life to come more than anything else. I want that. They wanted to live consecrated. There was a visible confirmation that we are the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives. Do we see that? There should be that. The disciple that wants to blend in to this culture and not look at anything different from it, that's becoming pervasive. And we, we, we need to be unique. We need to be different. We need to be holy unto the Lord. Do I want to, the, the world to come, the, the heaven to come more than anything else? But until that time comes, let's live consecrated. I want that. I do. I think most of us right now are saying, let's be done with this and let's take that. Any day, let's go. But until that time, God's not seen fit to take us home. So what's he seen fit to do? To be holy, to live consecrated to him, to serve to go out, to share the gospel, to witness to others. That's what he's called us to do. So I want my life to live. I want to be consecrated to God. And then the, the Nazarite treasured God above all else, above family. To not attend that funeral says that God was more important, that he was higher on the throne than even my family, my loved one. I can imagine my son dying and not being able to go to his funeral. And yet, if I was under that vow, that would be the case. Because God was more important. I was separated unto him. I can't come in contact and become unclean and unholy during my commitment to God. Because God was above all. The point is that God is the most important to me. He is more important to me than anyone, anything in this world. And we proclaim that often in our lives. But how is that evidenced in our life? We need to be living it out. The Nazarites were that billboard. They were, it screamed out, I'm living for God. I am dedicated. I am consecrated. I am separated to him. So I look at the Nazarite. There should be an evident priority in our lives. 
again manifested. How? By our choices, by our thinking, by our conduct, by our life. All of these areas should be manifested through this. How do people know that I treasure God? How do people know that I am looking forward to heaven? How do people know that I am consecrated unto God? How I, how I, what choices I make, how I think, my conduct in life, how I act. They, that's what they see. That's what they know. That's what they hear. And they ought to know that I treasure God above else. I want to live for God because God is my treasure. Because that is who he is. He is God. And he is, as pastors been preaching through in Colossians, he is above all. He is to be preeminent. Because he is that, I faithfully serve. He is the one I treasure. He is the one I long for. My heavenly focus is to be evidenced by consecrated living because I treasure God. How's your focus? How's our focus? You know, even as we look to Jesus Christ, think about it. Did he not display that heavenly focus? Did he not look when he's in the garden and he's looking and saying, I'm going to do the Father's will? He submits. He understood the plan. He understood what was happening. And yet, in all of that, he still willingly gave his life because he knew it was the Father's will to give his life. Why? Because he understood about heaven. He understood that for us to be able to enter into heaven, he would have to die and shed his blood for us. He demonstrated this very clearly, that he would consecrate his life for a heavenly purpose, for heavenly goals. So even as we come to communion in a few moments here this morning, we think about it. It is a, a, it's, it's a time of reflection, a time of remembrance. For some of you watching on live stream, you may be coming in a little bit later to, to observe communion with us as well. It helps us to reflect on the fact that Christ lived this way. He lived dedicated to the Father. He lived dedicated to a heavenly purpose and consecrated a holy life because God the Father was above all because he submitted to the Father's ways. And even for us today, as we think about that, what area of life, what practical way maybe can we give ourselves to Jesus Christ? Not quick vows today. Not looking and saying, this is what I'm going to do. This. Let's think about it. Let's be intentional. But let's give aspects of our life. Let's live holy. Let's live consecrated because God is our treasure. Father, I pray that you would help us as we study and we look at a, a vow that in the, the details we'll never, never be completely keeping, but Lord, in the philosophy and the understanding, the, the principles of what you have called even the Nazarite to, Lord, help us to desire heaven more than anything. But Lord, help us to live holy and consecrated unto you. And God, I pray that while we do that, we would do it because it's an attitude of graciousness because of what you've done for us. We thank you for your love. We thank you for the sacrifice of Christ. And even in these moments when we're able to celebrate the joy of communion, Lord, I pray that we would rejoice, but we would remember all that Christ has done for us. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.